The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I would invite you to open your Bibles to John 7. We are returning to the Gospel of John, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 10. John 7, 1 to 10. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. This is God's holy word. So, John chapters 7 through 9 really are this parenthesis between Jesus's Galilean ministry and when he goes to Judea to be crucified at the final Passover. And what you see contrasted is Jesus versus an unbelieving world. Jesus versus an unbelieving world. And what you see is the great chasm that exists between who Jesus is and what his kingdom is and what the world is. We're prone to think that there's really not that big of a difference between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. But what Jesus shows us over and over again in John 7 to 9 is that there's a vast difference. There's an antithesis between him and the world, between belief and unbelief. And the reason for that antithesis is this. This is something that's so important for you to understand about the Christian life, about Jesus, about the kingdom is that Jesus came here to establish an eternal kingdom in the future. If you can understand that, then you're going to understand why Jesus is so different from everything else in this world. Jesus did not come here to set up a political kingdom in the here and now. He came to establish a future kingdom. And if you're a believer, you're in that kingdom. But is it a kingdom that you can see with your eyes? No, it is not. It's a kingdom that's future. So, the writer of Hebrews says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So, faith means that we see God, His promises, and the kingdom, even though they are not visible to the eyes of the world. That's what faith is. 
is that you believe the promises of Jesus, that He has established an eternal kingdom, and that you've trusted Him, and that you are now in that kingdom. And here's the key difference between you and the world, is that now you are living your life for an invisible kingdom of the future, while everybody else in this world is living their life for the next 40 years. Jesus came to establish a kingdom for all of eternity. He calls us to enter a kingdom that is an eternal kingdom. And so what that means is this, is that the way that that kingdom functions is completely different from the way that this kingdom functions. In this kingdom, if you're first, you're first. In that kingdom, who's first? The last shall be first. In this kingdom, you do everything you can to get ahead in the here and now. In this, in this kingdom, you die to self so you can be ahead for all of eternity. Whoever wishes to gain his life, Jesus says, well, what? Lose it. Lose it. Do you see the difference? The, the kingdom turns things upside down. I want you to see this. I want you to turn to the right, to the book of 1 Corinthians very quickly. Keep your finger here in John 7. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And Paul contrasts the wisdom of this world, the wisdom of this kingdom, with the wisdom of the next. And what you see is, is that the wisdom of Christ, the wisdom of God, overturns the wisdom of this world. Look at verse 18. Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Listen, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise." And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You see, you can go read the self-help books. You can read Atomic Habits, all those things. But they only get you so far. They don't get you into that kingdom. But what gets you into that kingdom is something that the world did not expect, and that's a bloody cross. The Greeks didn't expect it. The Jews thought that, that the cross was cursed. But God used something that the world did not expect to bring about the kingdom that is. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe that you believe in a crucified and resurrected Messiah. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. Greeks, it's Aristotle, Aristotle, Socrates, Plato. We're trying to get ahead with worldly wisdom. We're, we're trying out our stiff upper lip with the stoic mindset, endure suffering. We're trying to do all those things to get through life. But the way that the kingdom comes is through the cross. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, listen, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The wisdom of this kingdom overturns the wisdom of this kingdom. Now, look at verse 30. Skip ahead to verse 30. He says, and because of him, that's Christ, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. This is the wisdom of the eternal kingdom. This is the wisdom that overturns the wisdom of the world. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 
Now skip down to chapter 2, verse 3. Paul says, when he came to the Corinthians, this is his ministry, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Listen to this. And my message, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. It's not the wisdom of this age. Listen, I can tell you, self, you know, self-help things to, to get ahead. Show up early to work. Do, do your job all the way to the end. Uh, get up early. You know, th- these are basic things that you can get ahead in this world. But that won't get you into the kingdom. And Paul said, my message was the cross, the simplicity of the cross, this wisdom that overturns the wisdom of the world in demonstration of the spirit and power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Look at verse six. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. This is a kingdom wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Listen to this. Notice the difference between Christ's kingdom in the kingdom of this world. Paul says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And he says, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. All that the leaders and the wisdom of this age understands is how to get ahead in the here and now. That's it. They didn't understand what was going on with Jesus Messiah, they didn't understand that he was going to the cross as the final Passover lamb to die for the sins of the world. They understood none of that. They failed to understand the nature of the kingdom. Jesus said this. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like this. This is Matthew 13, 31. It's like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants. It becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Point being, it's the unexpected kingdom. You don't expect that mustard seed to grow into a big tree. You think that the bigger seeds are going to outgrow it. The kingdom often looks like it's small. It's, it's not empowered, but then God does something miraculous and builds this kingdom in a way that we least expect. Jesus put it another way in John 12, 24. Jot down that verse, John 12, 24. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. So what's the temptation if you have a piece of grain? What's the temptation? You, you harvest the grain, what's the temptation? You say, well, I want to make bread. So you take it to the mill, you grind it into the flour, and then you're able to bake bread. You're able to use the grain. You can, you're able to feed your family. That's the, that's the logical thing to do with the grain. But Jesus says, the kingdom is not like that. The kingdom is like this. You take that piece of grain and instead of taking it to the mill, you go and you till the ground, and you put it in the earth, and you leave it there for like six months. And that grain of wheat dies in the ground. That little husk that the seed is in is crushed. But then there's germination. And when the ground temperature is right, what happens? It grows and it bears fruit. It's the fruit 
that came through faith. You plant it in the ground in faith, it dies in the ground, and there's nothing for months. But then the fruit comes, and the harvest comes, and you reap a great harvest. And Jesus says, that is what the kingdom is like. And this is what God is always doing. Jesus, he's crucified. He's in the, he's in the tomb. Three days. People think it's done. Everybody's given up. And then bam, resurrected, kingdom established. Joseph, what happens? He's thrown in jail wrongly by Potiphar. He's in the jail for years and years and years. He's done. But then God pulls him out. Prime Minister of Egypt, Daniel, thrown into the lion's den. He's done. He's good for dead. King comes back in the morning, opens up the pit, and the lion's mouths have been shut, and then they throw the bad guys into the pit. Gideon, God reduces his army to 300 men to fight the Midianites. And then they come, pitchers, torches, and they win the battle. You see, people always discount the kingdom of God. They say they're done. Those Christians, why are they still meeting? Pointless what they're doing. Discounted, forgotten, laughed at, scorned. And then God, when you least expect it, takes what you thought was on the ropes and wins the victory. That's how the kingdom works. And that's what you see in John 7. I want you to turn back to, to John 7. I go through all of that so you can understand this dichotomy between Jesus and the world. And you see, I want you to look at verse, verse 1 here. John says, after this, well, after this refers, refers to John chapter 6, and a period of about six months has transpired since the end of John chapter 6, and we'll get to, get to that in a minute, how we, how we know that. But if you look at John chapter 6, you can see what happened. Look at verse 66. This is after Jesus multiplied the bread and the loaves, and after He gave the bread of life discourse. Verse 66 says, after this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. So, Jesus lost His following, if you will, in John chapter 6. His popularity is done. The mass crowds are, are over. Uh, the, the, the crowds have abandoned him because they wanted a political kingdom. They wanted lots of bread. It wasn't good enough for Jesus to just do one miracle. They wanted Jesus to keep repeating it. So they abandoned Jesus. Now, if that's not enough, look what John says next. Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews, by the Jews he's talking about, not just every Jew, but the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious elite in Jerusalem, the Jews were seeking to kill him. That word seeking is the Greek word zeteo, it means to pursue after. In other words, Jesus is a hunted man. They are really trying to get him. This isn't just a passive thing, a wanted poster up in Jerusalem. No, they are they're going after Jesus because they want to kill him. Verse 2 says, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. If you've studied your Old Testament, you'll know that there are three major feasts 
that every male was required to attend. The first was Passover, the second Pentecost, and the third is the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. It's the longest of the feast. It was the most celebrated or the most fun feast. It was, it was the favorite feast that everyone wanted to participate in. And, and what you would do is you would go into Jerusalem, and every day, it was seven days long, there would be sacrifices in the temple. But every, it's called booths because everybody would live in wooden little tents in the streets, in the temple court. Even if you lived in Jerusalem, you would set up a, a, a wooden uh, shelter on the roof of your house. And that was to commemorate and remember how God provided for the children of Israel in the wilderness, how they lived in tents for years and years and years in the wilderness. So, the Feast of Booths was in the month of Tishri, which would be October for us. So, Passover is John 6. That would be about March, April. So, six months have essentially transpired. Now, it's the, the Feast of Tabernacles. So, Jesus has lost his popularity. He's a hunted man, and What's he been doing for the past six months? What's he been doing? Well, if you read Mark chapter 7 to 9, you can see his ministry during this time. And what he was doing is he was training the 12. So he lost his popular ministry. Everybody's abandoned him. And he set that time aside to invest in the 12 disciples. Gives you some indication on the importance of discipleship, doesn't it? that it was in those 12 that went and turned the world upside down. Now, we see that he's been abandoned by the populace. The people want to, the Jews want to kill him in Jerusalem. And now we see in this passage that even his own brothers don't believe in him. Look at verse 5. It says, for not even his own brothers believed in him. We know that Jesus had at least four half-brothers. These would have been brothers that were born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus was born. We see in Matthew 13, 55 that their names were James, Joseph, Jude, or you could say Judas, and Simon. And John records that at this point, these brothers did not believe in Jesus. Now, Luke is going to tell us in Acts 1:14 that later after the resurrection, these brothers believed in him. In fact, James and Jude both wrote epistles in the New Testament. But here they're in a state of unbelief. They're part of the world. They're part of the kingdom of man. And they don't understand Jesus and his mission. And what they decide to do is to take it upon themselves to get Jesus' ministry going. They presume that they can help Jesus get his ministry started, grease the skids a little bit, give him some cues. And what we see in this is we really see how unbelief misunderstands Jesus in the kingdom of God. And I want to give you four principles of how unbelief misunderstands the Lord Jesus Christ. First, unbelief misunderstands Jesus's power. Unbelief misunderstands Jesus's power. Look at verse 3. So his brothers said to him, leave here, leave Galilee, and go south, go to Judea, that your disciples, these are the people that used to follow him, also may see the works you are doing. 
circle or underline that word works. It's the Greek word ergon. It just simply means a deed, a work that you do. But here, it's being specifically used to refer to Jesus' miracle works. Remember, Jesus' brothers had seen Jesus turn the water into wine at Cana. They had seen him probably heal many people. They had certainly heard, if not witnessed, Jesus multiplying the bread and the loaves. Here's the point. They believed that Jesus was a miracle worker. Do you get that? They believed he could do miracles. They just didn't believe in him. They believed in the miracles. They believed he had the power to do these things. They just didn't believe in him as their Lord and Savior. They misinterpreted Jesus' power. They assumed that he's a man, a great man perhaps, but a mere man. He's a man just like them. He's not the eternal Son of God. John says in John 20, verse 30, he says, Jesus did many other signs or miracles in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the point of the miracles, the signs that are recorded in the New Testament. The signs are there so that you might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, place your faith in him, and have life. If that doesn't happen, the the miracles are for nothing for you. In fact, in in John chapter 2, it said, many saw the signs that they were doing and believed in Jesus, but Jesus on his part did not believe in them, did not entrust himself to them because he knew that they had superficial faith. So just because you you saw the sign or the miracle, most of the people who saw the the signs and the miracles didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't trust him in their Lord and Savior. They didn't see what the, the sign was pointing to, that Jesus is Messiah, that Jesus is Lord. And this is always the path of the unbelieving world. The mighty works of Jesus are either explained away or not connected to the fact of his deity. If we look back at the history of 19th and 20th century liberalism, which dispensed with the miraculous works of Jesus altogether, modernism was the idea that everything that happens in this world has to be explained by natural causes. That was modernism. And so in the 1800s, the modernists said, look, everything in this world, there's an explanation for everything. There is no God. There is no miracle. And even if there is God, God can't interject himself in this created order. So, what the higher critics in Germany did, and they were very smart men, but they denied Jesus's miracles. And they sought to explain every miracle in terms of natural phenomena. So, Jesus walks on water, well, there's probably a sandbar underneath that he's, that he's walking on. Jesus multiplies the bread and fish. What Jesus really did is he just convinced everybody to share their lunch. So everything has an explanation according to the higher critics. And what they subsequently rejected is guess what? The deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a good man. He was an insightful man. But he was a mere man. He wasn't Lord. The problem with evangelicals is not that we have 
stop believing in the miracles, but that we've disconnected the miracles from the Lordship of Christ. We've become like Jesus' brothers, where the miracles have become passe. Jesus, go do your miracles in in Judea. Go. That's cool for you to do. Go do them for your disciples. We are supposed to see the signs that Jesus did and be stunned by them. I have a picture in my office, and it's a picture of Jesus in the boat right after he's, he's calmed the sea, and he's standing there, the sea is calm, and the disciples are looking up at him, and they are stunned. Who is this man? Who are you that even the seas and the winds obey you? And we are supposed to have a certain reverence for the Lord, and we are supposed to connect the miracles that we see with true saving faith in him as Lord, Messiah, our Redeemer. But an unbelieving world never makes that connection. Second, unbelief misunderstands Jesus' methods. And this is so prevalent today. You need to pay attention to this. Unbelief always misunderstands Jesus' methods. The world looks at our methods, which are prayer and preaching of the Word of God, as foolishness. The world looks at the preaching of the cross as foolishness. They look at our methods and laugh as irrelevant because we're not doing things their way. Look at verse 3. Again, his brother said to him, here's what you need to do. Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. They say, Jesus, this is the logic. This is the wisdom. This is the way that you get your program started again. This is the way that you get your followers back. What you need to do is these miracles that you've been doing up here in Galilee, you need to take them south. You need to go show them to the influential people in Jerusalem. You need to go to L.A. You need to go to New York. You need to, you need to win the influential people. You need to make a big show you need to project yourself. You need to start drawing a crowd as soon as you can. And, and their logic for this is in verse 4. Look at verse 4. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. Look, if you want to be a public figure, you've got to do your works publicly. If you want to be known, you've got to start that YouTube channel, right? And get yourself out there. They say, look, if, if you want to be known, if you want to win back the, the masses, you need to go and do these things openly, not in secret. They say, if you do these things, show yourself, notice this language, to the world. Go show yourself to the world. And here's the key thing. His brothers do not understand the methods of the kingdom. And that's why John puts this next verse in there, for not even his brothers believed in him. They don't understand how Jesus advances the kingdom. And they're looking at his ministry through the lens of unbelief. All they're looking at are the metrics. And that's what the world looks at, is is what you can see. The world looks at how many people do you have? How many subscribers do you have? How big's your budget? How big's your building? Those are the metrics of the world. 
Those aren't the metrics of the kingdom. And that's the metrics that they're using to gauge his ministry. And that's why they're saying you need to go and make this spectacle in Jerusalem. Here's the thing. That method is actually Satan's method. That method is Satan's method. In Matthew 4, Satan comes to tempt the Lord Jesus. And what he does, first he tells Jesus to turn stones into bread after he'd fasted 40 days. But second, he takes Jesus. They literally go to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. And here's the thing. Do you think a lot of people could see them on the pinnacle of the temple? Yes, they could. It's a public space. He takes them to Jerusalem, to a public space, and he says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Essentially what Satan is saying is, is you need to do a mass demonstration of your deity. You need to go and throw yourself down. It'll be a public spectacle, a public display. People will see you falling, and then God will lift you up with his angels, and everybody will know who you are. That's what you should do. And Jesus said to him, it is written, you shall not put the Lord thy God to the test. That's Satan's method, a public spectacle in order to gain a hearing. I want you to see Jesus' method Again, keep your finger here, and I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. This is the method of the kingdom. This is how we are to work. Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' kingdom manifesto about the ethics of living in the kingdom of God. And look at Matthew 6, 1. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness, your good works, your deeds, before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. They see it, you lose your reward. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that you may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let, let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The same is true with prayer and fasting. Prayer, verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Fasting, verse 16, jump down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I've got a question for you. When do you receive those rewards? When do you receive those rewards? In the future. 
the rewards are in the kingdom. This, this is a kingdom manifesto. Do you see how otherworldly this is? Our world says, I need to get the big following now. I need to get the rewards now. All the money I can now, all the influence I can now, all the pleasure I can now. That would be true if it weren't for the resurrection. Paul said, if the resurrection isn't true, then we of all people are most to be pitied because we should go live like that. But it is true, so we don't live like that because we live for the kingdom that is to come. You see the difference? The whole method of the kingdom is that you do your works in private and you leave the results to God. You don't go out and try and gain a hearing. You don't go out and try to, to, to win the world. What you do is you be faithful and you be humble before God and you practice your righteousness in secret. If you would turn back to John 7. The methods of the kingdom are prayer and the ministry of the word. Prayer and the ministry of the word. And Jesus refused, refused to go public the way that the world wanted him to go public. The only way he went public is what? The cross. You remember the Pharisees, they always wanted a sign. Jesus said, man, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of what? Jonah, after I'm resurrected from the dead. What you're going to get is the spectacle of the cross, John 12, 32. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. The pragmatism of the day says that we need to use the world's methods to win the world. We need to put our finger up in the air and see what ideas are influencing the world. And whatever those ideas are, we're going to use those to win people. But that's never the method of the kingdom. It's always righteousness done in secret, prayer, and the ministry of the word, faithfulness to sound doctrine. So that's second, unbelief misunderstands Jesus' methods. Third is unbelief misunderstands Jesus' timing. Look at verse 6. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. This is such an important statement that Jesus makes. And, it, and it's hard to understand when you, when you just look at it to understand what he means. But, but here's what he means by this. Uh, let me take first this, this first clause, my time has not yet come. Jesus operated his ministry on a very specific divine timetable in everything that he did. That word time is the Greek word kairos. And that's important because there's two words that are used for time. One is chronos, where we get our word chronology, and it just means simple a.m., p.m., chronological time. Kairos, the word that Jesus uses here, means a specific season, an opportune season. There's an opportunity, a time when you are supposed to do something. Sometimes Jesus uses the word hour, in the same way to imply the same thing. For example, in John 2.4, when, when Mary asked Jesus to do something at the wedding in Cana, Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
In other words, m- the specific time for me to start my ministry has not yet arrived. When Jesus was on his way into Jerusalem to celebrate his final Passover before he would be crucified, Jesus said in Matthew 26, 18, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. In other words, the time for him to be crucified. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. John 12, 23, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 13, 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So this reference to time means a specific divine timetable. And here what he's specifically referencing is the time when he is supposed to go to the Feast of Booths. And this is confirmed in verse 8. If you look at verse 8, Jesus says, my time has not yet fully come to go to the feast. It's not yet here, but it will be here. This is now not the appointed time for me to go to the feast. Because he knew if he were to go when his brothers were telling him to go, he would be arrested and killed. And that wasn't supposed to happen for six more months at the final Passover when he would be crucified at the same time as the Passover lambs. That was God's timetable. So Jesus said, his time is not yet here. But then look at the next clause. This is really an important thing to understand. This is astounding what Jesus says. This is a rebuke to his brothers. This is a rebuke. He says, your time is always here. Your time is always here. What does that mean? What does that mean, your time is always here? This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, it doesn't matter when you go to the feast because you're not part of the kingdom and you're not being used by God. It doesn't matter what you do. If, if you're in a state of unbelief, your time is always here. There's no, there's no appointed kairos in your life. There's no specific season in your life. It doesn't matter where you go, what you do. You're, you're in the kingdom of this world. You're in a state of unbelief. Yes, God ordains the things in your life, just as God is providential over everything. But your time is always here. It doesn't matter when you go to the feast. You can go now, you can go today, you can go tomorrow, but you're not part of the purposes of God. That's what he's saying. It doesn't matter if you're Bill Gates or the bum underneath the bridge. Your time is always here. That's how different our lives and missions are. Last is that unbelief misunderstands Jesus' position. So let me just go through these so you have all four of them. First, unbelief misunderstands Jesus' power. Second, unbelief misunderstands Jesus' methods. Third, unbelief misunderstands Jesus' timing. And then fourth, unbelief misunderstands Jesus' position. And this is, this is the most important thing I want you to see. Jesus here lays out the dramatic antithesis between him and his brothers, between him and the world, between his kingdom and Satan's kingdom. He's saying we are not the same. And this is what you need to know. If you are a believer, 
If you are a Christian, you are in a completely different category than the unbeliever. Completely different. You are in a completely different position. And that's what Jesus is saying to them. You don't understand me because I'm in a completely different position from you. Look at verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Why can't the world hate his brothers? Because they're the world. The world can't hate you because you're in the world. The world hates me because I'm not of the world. I testify that the world's deeds are evil. The world doesn't hate you because you're a part of it. You go along, you're complicit with all the evil that's in the world. You don't rebuke it. You're part of the system. Therefore, the world likes you. You want to go along to get along? Don't be part of the kingdom of God. Because then the world will hate you. 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. John 3, 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Next verse, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light. You hear that? Everyone who does wicked things, are they neutral to the light? No, they hate the light. You are different from the world if you're in Christ. They hate the light lest his work should be exposed. So Jesus is saying, look, you are part of this kingdom and the world cannot hate you. And so this whole method that you have, this is the method, is you want me to go and do these works to the world? To win the world? Don't you understand that I'm in opposition to the world? I'm here to call people out of the world. I'm here to call people into the kingdom of light. I'm not here to go along with the world. I'm not here to do the world's methods. I'm not here to do the world's things. I'm completely other. I'm completely different. My program is a different program. And by the way, yours is as well if you're in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are part of that kingdom, and so you also will be hated. John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, and I chose you out of the world, therefore, Jesus says, the world hates you. It doesn't matter the tone that you use, how nice you are, if you stand for truth, you will be hated in this world. Get it through your head. Stop trying to be like the world. I have been crucified to the world, and the world has been crucified to me. I don't seek favors from the world. The world stops seeking favors from me. I was talking to a remarkable young man this past week. And he went and interned this summer for a senator in D.C. And this gay bill came up. Maybe y'all heard about this. And the senator decided to take a straw poll with everybody in the office. Set everybody down. There were like 60, 70 people in the office. Went around and said, where are you on the bill? Where are you on the bill? 
where are you on the bill? Every single person in that senator's office was in favor of the bill, except for one guy, this young man. So the senator came to him, said, where are you on the bill? He said, I can't be in favor of this bill. This bill violates the law of God. This advances evil in the world. How can we call evil good? I asked him, well, what happened after that? He says, well, there's a lot of passive aggressiveness in D.C. And for the rest of the summer, I was on the outside looking in. If you stand for the truth of the gospel, and part of that is testifying to the world that its works are evil so that they will receive the gospel and repent, you will be ostracized and hated. Your program is different from the world's program. The kingdom is not the world's kingdom. It's a completely different agenda. It's the kingdom of light. It's the kingdom of truth. And you know what? The reward, you might not see it in this life. We see, we see the reward by faith in the life that is to come. So look at verse 8. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. His time is not yet here. It's about to be here. He's not going to go up to the feast as a pilgrim. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So everybody else goes up. Then verse 10, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up not publicly, but in private. And this would be the last time that he would be in Galilee before the crucifixion. So he leaves Galilee, and you can think about that long journey to Jerusalem, what he must have been thinking about every step following the Father's will as part of the Father's kingdom agenda. This is what I want you to see. If you are of faith, you're of faith. And if you're of unbelief, you're of unbelief. You can't mix the two. Jesus' kingdom is not the world's kingdom. And the sooner we realize that, the sooner everything will come into focus. The sooner everything will make sense. And you'll be able to stand for Christ in this dark world because you understand through faith the Lord in his eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this truth that you've shown us this morning, how our Lord stood against the methods of unbelief, the timing of unbelief, the thought processes of unbelief, the, the misunderstandings of unbelief, and how the Lord Jesus directs us back to the realities of faith back to the realities of the kingdom, of living our lives on purpose for God. And Lord, we pray, Lord, for strength that we would have the power to stand in this evil day, to take up the full armor of God and after done everything else to stand. And we pray, Lord, that we would stand firm against Satan's schemes and that we would see things as they really are, that we would see 
the kingdom of this world as what it is, that it's fading, that it's temporal, that it's here today and gone tomorrow, and that we would live lives sold out for your eternal kingdom. We ask all these things for the sake of your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com. 